As we looked at it last week, just kind of as a reminder, we said there were two halves to this book of Ephesians. And so in the first half, Paul's answer is, is talking about remember who you are, your identity, who God has created you to be. So remember who you are and this new life that is yours. And then in the second half, he's going to talk about now that you remember who you are, remember why you're here. So, so who you are sheds light on why you're here. And that your new life offers to you a new way of living. Another layer to this, and we're going to see that today, especially in our, our reading in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, is that, that the first half is all about wealth. So we saw that last week in talking about riches, and if you listen to Paul as he read Ephesians 2, you heard that word riches over and over again, or the wealth that is found in Jesus Christ. And so there's that wealth language, but there's also this idea of, of walking then in Christ. So now that you know who you are and the wealth you have, now, this is how you walk, and in chapters 4 to 5, there's actually five walk imperatives, five walk commands on how somebody who has a new life ought to walk, and then chapter 6 is the armor of God chapter that talks about warfare, so your wealth determines your walk, which sets you up for the spiritual warfare that there is, and we're going to see the wealth and the walk talk in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Let's uh, start our time with a word of prayer, we pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that you have specifically chosen us before the foundation of the world. You have adopted us. You have lavishly loved us as your children so that we can know who we are. So remind us of that calling that you have placed on each and every one of us, a calling to a new life and a new identity so that we might have a new way of living. Open our ears today to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive the word that you are speaking this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So as an athlete, one of the things you learn to, or come to terms with is the fact that, that as an athlete, you get ranked. So if you've ever been an athlete, you know you get ranked. In wrestling, the way that ranking works was we would get to tournaments at 6 a.m. for weigh-ins. And so we would be on the road at 5.30, show up at 6, weigh in, and then you'd go out on the mats and you would start to warm up. And then after everybody weighed in, the coaches and the officials for the tournament would take everybody's weight and they would gather together, group wrestlers by weights and weight classes, and then they would go through everybody's record and who they had wrestled and everything like that, and they would start ranking you. So, and then after they ranked you, they would put you, according to your rankings, in a bracket. Some of you have seen this because you're familiar with the NCAA basketball tournament, so, so you, you get ranked. And then at about 8 o'clock, two hours after you weighed in, all of a sudden uh, someone would come on the loudspeaker and would say, the brackets are now available. And as soon as they said that, the mats cleared. Like everybody left the mats because everybody wanted to see the brackets. And so every, all the wrestlers would run over to check their brackets out and see, see where am I, who am I wrestling, what's going on. And, and you would see guys who would go over there and then they would turn around there with huge smiles on their faces and they'd be excited because they were probably ranked one or two, right? And then there were other guys who they would turn around and they would be, because they were not ranked one or two. Right? Because when you're lower ranked, you have to wrestle harder guys. When you're higher ranked, you wrestle easier. And the interesting thing about that is your ranking changed weekend to weekend completely dependent on who showed up. It was all about who showed up. One week, you could be ranked number one because nobody else that was good enough showed up. And another week, you could walk in and you could be ranked number eight because there were seven other guys who were better that showed up at that tournament. It could change from week to week, from day to day, from who was there and who is not there. 
We know these ranking systems. If you've been watching the NFL draft, you understand ranking systems, right? Like the Mel Kuyper's big board, who is left? Who is the, the top rated players who are left? And what did they do? They ranked them. We rank products. That's a better product than this product. That's a better company than this company. We rank them. And you and I, we oftentimes do rankings in our own life. At work, we will do rankings with our employees. This employee is a better employee than that employee. Or, or you'll do that where you pit yourself against another employee in the company you work for and say, say, I don't understand why they got a raise. I'm a better worker than they are. I deserve that raise. I deserve that promotion. I've worked harder for it. I do more. I contribute in a greater way. And so we rank ourselves. We do that with our friends sometimes, especially you see junior high and high school students do that. Like, like they rank themselves and they don't do it where they're like actually literally ranking, but, but they want to be the best, the most popular. They, they want to be the ones that people talk about and look to and, uh, and, and tell things about. And so, so they rank them or try to rank themselves up in the eyes of other people. Some of us also as adults fall into that. Sometimes we do that with our, our children's parents, our children's friends' parents. Where, where we hope that we are more popular or we are more loved or cared about than our children's friends' parents, right? And so, so, yeah, they always come over to our house. We're the cool parents. We're the parents who, who have the most fun and do the most, you know, and so, so we compare that way. Some of you do that by even just comparing your own children against somebody else's children. You do that when it comes to sports. You're like, I don't even understand why the coach started him. My son should have started instead. Like, like, seriously, they put him on the field at that time. If they had put my child out there, we would have won the game. Like, I don't understand. They, they put her out there for 25 minutes and my daughter only got 15. And my daughter knows way more skills than she does. Like, what are you doing? And what do we do? We're ranking them. We are ranking them. And when you rank something, what you do is you really ask, how do I stack up against them? Where do I compare to them? And when you do that, you start pitting yourself against other people. And you come in conflict with each other. And there is stress in that relationship because you are ranking yourself in a way that pits yourself against other people. What we're going to see today in the text is that God destroys every ranking system that we could ever create. He destroys that idea of pitting each other against one another in a way that answers, again, these two questions we said are at the found, which are at the foundation of Ephesians, which is, who am I and where do I belong? So I'd love for you to open up this morning as we talk about this in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You can find this on page 976, page 976 in your Bibles. As you open up to that, I want to introduce you to a concept, uh, a, a statement that is going to be at the heart of everything we see from chapter 2 through chapter 6. And that idea, that image, that phrase is this, is that that. We are, God's people are a family that is rooted in Christ and reaching in love. That as a family, we become rooted in Christ and reaching in love. Now, let me explain that to you and why each of those phrases is important. The first part of that is that we are a family. We're a family. If you read through Ephesians, you will see there's a lot of you words. In fact, at the very beginning of chapter 2, it's going to say, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once lived, and then it's going to keep going. That word you in English can either be singular or plural. But in Greek, there are actually two different words in the Greek. One word denotes the singular you, and one denotes the plural you, so you don't have to guess if it's 
meant for one person individually or a group of people. In Ephesians, 90% of the time, the word you is a plural you, meaning it is a group of people. It is a collection of people. And then if you go into Ephesians 4 and 5, you're going to see that he's going to have a lot of family language, like parents, raise your children in this way, and children, obey your parents in that way, and, and this, this idea of and husbands and wives, how do you interact? And so, so it's going to have a lot of this family language. And God reminds his people that you are a family. You are the family of God that he has brought together. And so we are a family, a family that is rooted in Christ. In fact, if you read, and we're going to see this in our text next weekend, if you read uh, Ephesians chapter 3, it's going to talk about being rooted and grounded in love. That we are rooted. And then there's 38 times that, if you were here last week, we talked about that, that phrase, in Christ. That you are in Christ, that we are loved in Christ, that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ, that we've been adopted in Christ, that you and I, we are rooted in Christ. But being rooted in Christ, we now reach out in love, and that's another theme that you're going to see, especially in chapters 4 to 6, that God calls us to be reaching out in love because we're rooted in Christ. And those that are rooted in Christ are going to have the heart of the one that they are rooted in, and that's a heart of love. And the image that, that, I, that it brings to mind in my mind is that of a tree, right? Because if you're a tree, and as a tree, you don't have a root system, you have branches and your branches are reaching and they're growing, and, but if you have no root system, when the wind and when the storms and the tornadoes and the difficulties and the struggles of life come, what happens to the tree? It falls down, doesn't it? Because it has no root system. But... If you're a tree that has a really deep root system, but you don't have any branches and any leaves and any fruit, you're just a stick in the ground. And what's your purpose? Nothing. So you tear it up to plant a healthier tree. God's people, we're going to see in Ephesians, are called to be a family that is rooted in Christ. We are rooted in his promises. We are rooted in his gifts to us, in his body and blood. We are rooted in prayer. We are rooted in grace. We are rooted in forgiveness. We are rooted in what God has done for us. But we are rooted in those things so that as deeply rooted as we are, we can be as widely reaching as we can be. That we can produce the fruit in keeping with righteousness. And so God has called us as the family of God to be deeply rooted in Christ so that we can be widely reaching in love. We're going to see this concept. You start here in Ephesians 2 and then carry out through the rest of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. So let's look at Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice how it starts. It dispels any notion of who you are. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You were dead. And what do dead people not do? They don't respond to anything, right? They don't do anything. Dead people are dead. I had a professor who once illustrated this in class, uh, Elements of Biblical Theology, Dr. Mashke, he came here and preached, and so, so at the beginning of class, it was an 8 a.m. class at Concordia Mequon, and, and he would have us come in, and then he would take one person up front, he would say, okay, I want you to lay on this, this uh, desk uh, up front, the teacher's desk, and you are dead, so stay here. 
And then he would go outside the classroom and he would knock on the door and he would yell that person's name out and he'd say, let me in, let me in. And, and they would get up and they would start to let him in. He goes, sit back down, you're dead. They'd have to go back and lay down and he'd go back to the door and he'd start knocking on the gate. Let me in, let me in. Finally, after doing that for about a minute, he would finally, he would open the door and he would walk in and he would walk up to that person and he would place his hands on his shoulders and he would say to them, I now make you alive. You can go and sit back down. Notice who was doing it all. He was. When you are dead, dead people cannot respond. They can only be resurrected. And that's you and me. We are dead. We cannot respond to God. We cannot choose God. We can't accept God. We, we cannot allow God into our hearts because we're dead. That is only the act of the Holy Spirit. It is only what God does in our hearts to make us alive. And we are reminded here that you, I, we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We have walked this waywardness in our lives. And notice he says this waywardness in which you once walked. That word walk is going to be very significant because how you walk matters. What you walk in matters because we either walk in one of two ways. We either walk in the things that are dead or we walk in the things of the Spirit. And when you look at your life, you are either walking in the way that the Spirit directs you or you are walking in a way that leads only to death. And then he shows us three different ways that we walk in death. In fact, these three ways are actually found in our catechism and, and are taken from Ephesians chapter 2. It's going to be the world, the devil, and our sinful nature. You're going to notice it. He says, says you once walked following the course of this world. You followed the principles of this world. You followed the beliefs of this world. You bought into the lies that the world told you that certain lifestyles are acceptable, that certain ways of acting are acceptable, that certain things that you ought to value are acceptable, even when God's Word says they're, they're not acceptable. And you have allowed those lies, those ways of living, the, those beliefs to creep in. And it's saying you've got to put a death to cultural Christianity. You have to put a death to saying, I can have both what this world values and what God values. No, you either walk in death or you walk in life. And so we need to put to death those lies of the world that would call good bad and bad good. And the second part, he says, says following the prince of the power of the air. He says, what is the world following? It's following the devil. His schemes, his lies, he who is the great deceiver. We are following those things all too often. It's a reminder of what happened with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan and they followed after him, following the desires of their hearts and following the lies that were around them. He goes, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And how often do we follow after those things? Our own purposes, our own desires, our own lusts, our own passions, the things that we think are acceptable. And then we say things like, like I, I, I know this isn't acceptable, but doesn't God want me to be happy? Wouldn't God want me to be happy? If this makes me happy, if this makes me feel good, isn't that what God wants for me? And yes, God wants you to be happy, but never at the expense of your holiness. God is more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. And if your holiness comes at the expense of your happiness, he says walk in the way of holiness and not happiness because you either walk in the power of the Spirit or you walk in death. And God wants you to walk in life, even if that isn't according to the things that you want and desire, according to the sinful passions of your flesh. 
And we are reminded in this text that, that we can feel alive and not be alive at the same time. You can feel alive and still be dead at the same time. Ephesus was a city that would have felt alive. They had a, a theater in which they did plays and had music. They had a gymnasium. They had a place uh, that they could gather together for athletic competitions. They had a library. They had a huge marketplace. They had a harbor. They had people coming in and out. They had 300,000 people hustling and bustling all around. And, and there was tons of entertainment and tons of fun and tons of opportunities. There was a, the Temple of Artemis that was there. I mean, it was almost, you could say, a modern-day Las Vegas. And it felt alive in that city. And yet Paul reminds them, you may have felt alive, but we all, in following the passions of our flesh, were dead. We were by nature children of wrath. In fact, when you walk in the deadness of your sin, that's what you are. Because we are reminded that the wages of sin is death. And that is what you and I, that we have all walked in the midst of that death. Because there is nothing this world can offer you that brings life. Because the things that make you feel alive can make you feel alive for a short period of time, but then you need more and more and more. My, my parents are part of a, a timeshare type thing where, where they get points, and after they build up enough points, they can purchase time at a resort or time at a, a town, town home in, in the Dells or in Florida or things like that, and so they can go on vacation, and they build up all these points as part of this timeshare thing. And, and uh, they, whenever they go on this, though, whenever they spend their points and they go to wherever they're going on vacation, they always have to go to one of those seminars. Been a part of a timeshare, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's one of those seminars where they remind you, hey, you know, we are so thankful that you bought this and you were a part of this and you're getting points, but if you spend another $5,000 this year, we will double your points and you will get 10 more different locations. And then you do that, and then the next year they go, hey, we're so thankful that you did that last year, but, and it keeps going, right? Because every year there's more and more and more, and they offer more and more and more, and they say, if you want the top of the line, you used to have it, but now you have to do more to get it. Because you used to feel alive, but now if you want more, you have to do this. And you can feel alive, but not be alive, because the world doesn't offer you that which makes you truly alive. And that can only be found in Jesus Christ. But it says, you and I, we all walked in this. We are all guilty and we all fall short of the glory of God. In fact, that's where we see that God has destroyed the ranking system. There are no better or worse people in the eyes of God. We are all sinners standing at the foot of the cross. We are all on an even playing field. There are no better or worse Christians. There are no better or worse people. We are all sinners who need the mercy and the grace of a God who loves us. We are all, by nature, objects of wrath. And you and I, we understand what it means to have an object of wrath, especially if you're a golfer, right? Because your golf clubs sometimes, they are objects of your wrath when you break them over your knee or throw them into the lake that you hit your golf ball in six times, right? You understand an object of wrath when your car doesn't start in the morning, you understand an object of wrath when your computer isn't working or the battery on your phone that used to hold a charge for 24 hours now barely works for six because you have to keep charging it because you have an old phone, right? Like we get objects of wrath. The wages of sin is death. 
And without the grace and love of Jesus Christ, that is what you and I are, and there's nothing we can do. There's no way to rank up in the eyes of God. But then we hear these two amazing words. I love these two words. It says, but God. The gospel is contained in those two words. But God. This woman was blind, but God came along. This woman, her son died, but God showed up. This man, he was deaf from birth, but God. This woman was caught in the act of adultery and was thrown at the feet of Jesus, but God. You were broken in your sin and trespasses. Your life was torn apart, but God showed up. That's the gospel. It's but God. God breaks in. God inserts himself into your life in amazing ways. And that God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses, when we had nothing to offer, when we couldn't merit or rank up or do anything on our own, God rich in mercy when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace shown to us in Christ Jesus. Do you see that wealth language? The immeasurable riches that are found in Christ Jesus? I don't don't know how you do vacation, but uh, when my wife and I plan for vacation, we will go through and we will plan out the whole vacation of everything we want to do and all the places we want to go and the restaurants we want to be a part of. And then I will do what I always do, which is the budgeting part of it. And I'll start putting prices next to it. Like, all right, we got to do that and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And then at the end of it, I'll look at it and I go, yeah, we can't do that. (laughs) So let's, uh, instead of eating out eight times, let's do four times. Instead of going to six different places, let's go to three different, right? What do you have to do? You have to start rationing because you only have so much money at your disposal. And so you start crossing things off that you know you can't afford as you ration your money. God does not have to ration his grace. God will never go bankrupt. He will never run out of mercy and forgiveness and a new life that is yours in Jesus Christ. There are immeasurable riches that are found in the love that is given to you and to me in Jesus Christ. Because God came to make us alive, right? I mean, mean, that's the point of this. God, he didn't come to make bad people good. God came in Jesus Christ to make dead people alive. And there's a difference. Like sometimes we were like, like I, I just want God to come and help me to be a better person. I, I want God, God to come and help my, my son or my daughter to be a better person. And, and, and becoming alive will help them to do that. But God's primary purpose wasn't to come and make you a moral person. God, his primary purpose was to come and to make you a living person. To take what was once dead and make it alive. And then he gives us this great, amazing passage a promise that we are rooted very deeply in. He says, so by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works, not a result of works that no one may boast. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God reminds us of the sacrificial love that is ours in Jesus Christ, that God has created us. He created us on purpose, out of his grace, out of his mercy, not according to anything you have done. God created you on purpose as his creation in Christ Jesus, but he created you on purpose to do the works which he had prepared beforehand. He created you on purpose for a purpose. Notice in that passage, he created two things. He created you, and he created what you are called to do. And you are never more alive than when you know that God has made you alive, and he has made you alive to walk in the things that he has made you alive for. 
And when you and the works that God has created you to do come together, you are reminded that God has created you on purpose, loving you before the creation and the foundation of this world, knitting you together exactly as you are, creating you in Christ Jesus, in Christ, to do the works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Notice he has destroyed the ranking system in that. He says, he didn't say God has created you to do the works that somebody else has been created to do. And that's what we do sometimes, isn't it? Like we compare and we try to copy. Like my kids are great at this. They, they, they love doing this because it annoys each other just terribly, right? And so, so one of them will say something and the other one will say it exactly right back to them and they'll, stop copying me, stop copying me, stop copying Oh my gosh, like it is a horrible parenting experience when they start doing that, right? But how often do we do that with our life and we try to copy other people? God doesn't need another of the person you're trying to copy. He already has one of them. God just wants another one of you to be who God created you to be. And God created you on purpose, for a purpose. And you and I, and we as a church here at Grace, who have been created as a church here at Grace to be deeply rooted and widely reaching, God created us as a church on purpose, for the purpose that God has created us at this time, in this place, and in the midst of this community, so we can fulfill the purpose that God has created us. And you and I, and this church, we together, as a family, we are never more alive than when we know that we were created on purpose. And that God created us and brought us together for a purpose. And not just for ourselves, but so that we can reach out in love and share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others may know why they were created on purpose, for a purpose, for the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.